This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. We can't get through this, in my personal opinion, without a fairly transparent and cooperative relationship with China. I mean, the distinguishing feature of this virus is that it requires a global response because it doesn't know any boundaries. Unless we work together on this, uh, we're not going to be able to to, to beat it in an efficient manner. So it, it matters as a matter of confidence in dealing with China that we understand its origins. You need leadership. Someone has to lead it. I don't see any country capable of leading it other than the United States for a couple of reasons. First, everyone looks to us, even when they criticize us. One thing I learned in my career was people want U.S. leadership even when they don't want it. And yet we're, we're not at the moment really postured to do that. Uh, you know, I don't want to get overly political, but the truth of it is uh, our current administration has pulled out of just about every multilateral institution that could be a foundation for global leadership. If we're not going to lead, who does? I don't think the Chinese can lead. They do not have our soft power, meaning the universal identification with culture and values that people have when they look to the United States. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. John McLaughlin is a former deputy director and acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He was a career CIA analyst, and before he served as deputy director, he led the thousands of analysts who work at the agency. Today, he is a senior fellow and distinguished practitioner in residence at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies here in Washington, D.C. I just sat down with John to talk about the national security implications of the coronavirus outbreak. 
John, welcome, uh, welcome to Intelligence Matters. In fact, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. So this is the second time that you've been on the show. The first time was May 2018. In fact, it was late May. It was around Memorial Day. And um, you'll remember that we talked about the organization, the CIA Officers Memorial Fund that was created after 9-11 to take care of the families of CIA officers who were lost in the line of duty. And I would encourage our listeners that if you haven't listened to that episode, you should go back and do so. It's one of my favorite episodes. I also want to let people know that, that we're, we're in the midst of a series of episodes on the implications of coronavirus. So we started with Dr. David Agus, um, a CBS News medical contributor, to talk about the virus itself um, and what we know and what we don't know. And last week we had Lisa Monaco talking about how a White House, how a government should manage this sort of thing. And today we have you, John, to talk about the national security implications. And I mentioned to you that that in an email that I have a lot of questions about specific issues, you know, ranging from strategic competition with China and and potential political instability in important countries and all sorts of things. But I'd like to start by asking you if you have any sort of broad cross-cutting thoughts at this point about what the implications, what the kind of long-term implications of this might be for the world and international affairs, uh, national security, et cetera? Well, a couple things, Michael. You know, I think you have to begin uh, with something that I would not normally begin with, and that is uh, something that you and I will be familiar with from our time uh, in our former profession, where we always would want to know at the very beginning, what is it we don't know about something? And I think we're struggling a bit with the fact that there are more uncertainties about this situation than we typically have. You may have been through some of them with the medical expert, but uh, obviously it bears repeating that we don't know yet whether this is a seasonal phenomenon, a year-round phenomenon, whether we'll have a second wave or a third wave. We don't know yet when we'll get a vaccine. That's the second thing. Uh, People are saying a year to 18 months, uh, perhaps. We don't really know the origins of it. A lot of controversy about that. So you have to start by saying there are so many unknowns here that uh, what we say about the longer term consequences are inevitably subject to revision and speculation. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, some things are fairly obvious. Uh, there's a drop in output in the world uh, to the point where I think most economists are now projecting a fairly serious plunge in growth next year. I've seen estimates as high as 12% plunge in growth uh, when people were expecting really a rather smooth economy globally for the next year. Um, Another thing that's been going on for a long period of time and that has been highlighted in some Uh, even intelligence publications, is a kind of global, how to put it, a kind of global uh, dissatisfaction with government, which we see Mm -hmm. in a lot of different arenas and countries. Uh, That's probably 
uh, going to increase as a result of this because most countries are looking at their response to this and questioning whether their systems are are performing as they should be. There's uh, also, uh, you know, another big, huge issue globally is simply um, demographic change. You know, the world's going to hit something like 8.3, 8.4 billion people in a couple of decades. Uh, urbanization is increasing. 65% is what most people are expecting in a couple of decades, 65% of people living in cities. So it's already a very urban globe, 55% or so of the population of the world in cities. That that means that it, it's another way in which this is going to be hard to combat because social distancing is pretty easy where I'm living right now uh, in Virginia, but it's awfully hard in a place like Karachi or uh, Cairo. So there's that. Global order. <laughs> How do we think about global order? Well, you know, global order is essentially, it boils down to rules, institutions, borders, and things like that. Uh, this thing presents a challenge to global order in ways that we hadn't really considered previously uh, on just multiple levels. Let's just take something like uh, maritime rules and challenges. Everyone knows about China's challenge in the South China Sea and the East China Sea and so forth. But it's kind of striking that at this point in the Pacific, I think we have really no carriers operating. One is the Roosevelt, which is out of commission uh, because of the outbreak there. Another one is in maintenance and another one is on quarantine. And so at this point, China has the only aircraft carrier operating in that region. Isn't that something? That's That in itself is kind of emblematic of how it has affected uh, the U.S. ability to project power. And I know our Defense Department will say that they're up to any mission and so forth, and that's kind of what we expect of them and what they typically say. But in truth, uh, I think... Uh, our, our ability to project power is somewhat limited. And then on this whole issue of global order, obviously uh, China and Russia see opportunities here to increase their influence around the world, even as they struggle with the consequences of this virus for them. So, you know, one could go on about the broader strategic challenges and the, the global challenges. Oh, that's just the supply network that's interrupted in multiple ways just medical supplies. I mean, our economy, the global economy, as an economist, you know better than anyone that the economy globally works well when things are unimpeded and moving freely. But the virus has kind of acted like a, uh, maybe like a circuit breaker in terms of uh, breaking the flow of goods in an environment where um, almost everything is a product of multinational contribution from the iPhone to automobiles to the medicines that we take. One of the struggles right now being, of course, that many of the components for what we need to do testing happen to come from China. 80 to 90 percent of our antibiotics come from China. Most generic drugs, 60, 70 percent are made in India, but they get many of their components from China. And because everyone needs these things and because other things are impeding the flow of goods, um, that's also you know, off balance at this point. I, I should stop there because the, the global implications of this are 
almost beyond imagining. John, let me pick up on a couple of things that you said. And the first is the growing dissatisfaction that you mentioned with regard to how populations might be seeing their governments um, in terms of how they're dealing with the outbreak itself or how they're dealing with the economic consequences. And so I'm wondering, you know, sort of after the fact, as people are allowed to, or as people feel comfortable going back out into the streets, if we're going to see calls for political change in a number of countries, calls for political change that could even become violent. Um, how do you react to that? You know, I'm not thinking so much uh, violence. I'm thinking more a matter of diminished trust in in government. You know, if you look at uh, China, for example, uh, and it's always hard for us to imagine any really consequential discontinuity in China. People tend to think China will just be China and they'll continue being the way they are. Well, you know, it's it's now pretty obvious that China waited six, seven days a week or so before they informed the population that they had a serious problem that's come out in some leaked documents that have appeared in the media. Uh, it's also obvious that, and have been reported, that China is restricting publication of research that has been done in China on the origins and the development and spread of, of the virus. So uh, given that China already has a problem with Hong Kong feeling um, oppressed and speaking out about it, and given that Taiwan handled this a lot more skillfully than mainland China did, y you can imagine in the aftermath of this that there will be some um, strong discontent in China about how the government handled all of this. You know, in our own country, uh, surveys by the Pew Organization, a reliable public opinion surveyor, uh, if you went back to 1964, 75, 76% of Americans said they trusted the American government to do the right thing. That's now down to 17%. That's wow. before coronavirus before coronavirus. So you start off with, in the United States, a, a kind of diminished trust in government that has built over a long period of time. And, uh, you know, you just have to watch the news every day to realize that we're, we're at a moment here where we're, I think the average citizen is not quite sure what to believe about everything from masks to um, the availability of testing. Uh, look at Russia. It's clear Putin is trying to stay out of the public sight and delegating most of the public decisions on this to his advisors and his spokespeople and the mayor of Moscow and so forth. This is not something he wants to be particularly associated with uh, as the responsible authority. So you know, I'm not thinking of violence so much, but here's another one. And I'll stop at this point. If you look at the developing world, where we don't have a real, at least I have not been able to find a real mm, empirical sense of what's going on there with the spread of the virus, largely because uh, in some cases it's authoritarian governments who aren't, uh, as in Iran, who aren't uh, publicly acknowledging the depth of their problem. And in other places, it's uh, just inefficiency or so forth. 
So I mentioned demographics a few minutes ago with a burgeoning population in the world. Only 2 to 3% of that population increase is going to occur in the developed world. And this is going on every year. So in the less developed world, you're going to, you have burgeoning populations, governments that already have trouble providing services. And now you've got the coronavirus on top of it. I don't think we have the slightest idea what's happening in countries that have no ability to do social distancing. And, and the potential because of many of them being in the Southern Hemisphere for all of that to um, coalesce into a second wave that comes North again, we've got to think about that. But in those societies themselves, you, you can see because the stresses are already there, ethnic turmoil, migration, all of that, that's probably all going to be increased by this uh, virus because it's a problem that they're not prepared to handle. So, John, do you have a, a sense of how this will impact the already existing trend away from democracy and toward authoritarianism in the world? Well, I, I gather it's already started in places like Hungary, um, where uh, Orban has taken a lot of power unto himself to the point where uh, the European Union has uh, scolded him for uh, exceeding the rules of the European Union when it comes to dem democracy. You know, I just, you have a sense that certainly it's not going to enhance democracy in places like China or Russia or, or Egypt, for example, or Iran. So yes, I think a net result is probably going to be um, strengthening of authoritarian societies if they can survive it. Yeah. Going back to the uncertainties I mentioned at the very beginning. Yeah, you get the sense, right, that publics are willing to give up some of their rights in these kind of situations and are willing to give uh, more power to the executive in order to protect them, executives like Orban. And it's also happened in some other places now, you know, look to take advantage of those situations and grab power and probably don't plan on giving it back after the crisis subsides. So, you know, I worry about that. It's a war, and in wartime, you typically find that in societies, even in democratic societies. Yeah. So, so I, I want to come back to, to the point you made about the origins of the virus. You mentioned it a couple of times, and you know, there's the whole issue of man-made versus naturally occurring. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really interested in that debate, but the issue of you know, was this a virus that is was was being researched? at the Wuhan Institute and did it leak out accidentally? The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has been pretty strong about his views on that with regard to the possibilities. And, you know, I worry, I wonder, right, to what extent that might be overstating the evidence that we have. Just wondering what your thoughts are about the origin question and then why it's an important question. It, it I think that's overstating uh, the knowledge on this. Uh, again, you know, I'm not reading classified material here, but uh, you and I can both usually read between the lines of press stories that talk about intelligence. And the ones I've read, uh, and this is obviously the result of someone in the policy community, I guess, talking about what they've seen in the intelligence, uh, the intelligence uh, community at this point seems undecided about it or at the point of saying they cannot yet get to the bottom of it. 
and so I'd, I'd go for now with the idea that this is not certain enough to be confident. And that seems to be what people other than Secretary Pompeo are saying. Certainly the defense secretary has, Esper has come down on the side of, we're just not sure yet, we're looking into it. Why is it important? I, I think it's important because on two levels. First, I've seen nothing that tells me that this was created in a lab. Perhaps it was, but I've seen nothing that affirms that confidently. Um, most of what I've seen indicates that it came from uh, a bat that infected an animal that in turn was passed along to human beings one way or another. Whether We don't know yet whether that's true, and that's impeded a bit by the fact that China has started to clamp down on the publications of its research institutes on this. So it's only important because of what it tells us about um, the trustworthy uh, trustworthiness of what the Chinese are putting out on this. And the importance of that is that we can't get through this, in my personal opinion, without a fairly transparent and cooperative relationship with China. I mean, the distinguishing feature of this virus is that it requires a global response um, because it doesn't know any boundaries. And unless we work together on this, uh, we're not going to be able to, to, to beat it in an efficient manner. So it, it matters as a matter of confidence in dealing with China that we understand its origins. And uh, the sooner we get to the bottom of that and they help us get to the bottom of that, the better. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with John McLaughlin. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So I, I couldn't agree more with your characterization that we need a global response but it sure looks like every nation has turned inward and is worried about itself inside of its borders with not a lot of folks being interested on in, in coordinating some sort of global response. Yeah, well, we have to think about this. Look, look at it in terms of uh, the way the world reacted to the Spanish flu in 1918-19. Again, nationalism triumphed after that. And uh, within, you know, 20 years, we were back at war uh, in the Second World War. So the question here is, do we deal with this in the way the world dealt with it after World War I, or do we deal with it in the way that the United States dealt with turmoil and uh, trouble after World War II when we created largely at U.S. with U.S. leadership, all of the institutions, multinational, ranging from the U.N. to NATO to the Bretton Woods Agreement to and so forth and so on, the IMF, uh, 
creating essentially the foundation of what became a globalized uh, economy and a globalized network. Which of those models prevails here? And to get to a globalized model, you need leadership. Someone has to lead it. And I don't see any country capable of leading it other than the United States for a couple of reasons. First, everyone looks to us, even when they criticize us. One thing I learned in my career was uh, people want U.S. leadership even when they don't want it. And yet we're, we're not at the moment really postured to do that. Uh, you know, I don't want to get overly political, but the truth of it is uh, our current administration has pulled out of just about every multilateral um, institution that could be a foundation for global leadership and has signaled uh, with the America First policy that that's not what we're doing. I know they will say that we are leading and I've heard them speak publicly and at the Munich Security Conference and elsewhere about how the United States is leading. But if you're in the audience and listening to people, no one thinks we're leading. So you have that problem. And then if we're not going to lead, who does? Um, I don't think the Chinese can lead. They do not have our soft power, meaning the universal identification with culture and values that people have when they look to the United States. I mean, 70% of the box office receipts for American movies are overseas, mostly in Russia and China. And no other country has that, that soft power. Uh, so while people may want medical supplies from China, and they are presently the world's largest supplier of and manufacturer and supplier of ventilators and masks. And while they're also shipping out medical equipment to dozens of countries in Europe, Africa, Asia, and the United States, I think people will gladly take their help, but not translate that into a desire for Chinese leadership on international affairs, global order, national security. And so, I fear that we're in that World War I posture where no one is picking up the leadership mantle in a real sense. It's hard work. It's really hard work. And nations are going their own way. And on top of that, I mean, I've always been um, kind of an embarrassingly enthusiastic fan of the European Union, largely because I was a student in Europe when and in the early days of that, and I became infected with the idea that this was a, uh, a solution to Europe's problems, which I think for the most part it has been. But even in the European Union, you have disunity. Uh, Germany has done well, uh, better than most of the countries there, but uh, none of the countries are helping each other and they're competing for all of the things you need to get through this. And uh, the, the Chinese have shown up uh, again, with help that's accepted in places like Italy. Uh, Russia has shown up in uh, Serbia, which is not a NATO member, but is a partner nation, partner nation of NATO. Russia has shown up uh, to great effect uh, with their Slavic allies in uh, Serbia. So what you see is a, a situation so far that is more comparable to the post-World War I uh, situation than the post-World War II situation. Okay, John, let's maybe dig into some specific issues and maybe the most maybe the most important is what you think, what your sense is. Um, I know it's awful early, but what your sense is of how this 
will affect the U.S.-China strategic rivalry? Well, um, this is a difficult time for U.S.-China relations for a bunch of reasons. First, uh, you have the trade war, which has eased a bit with the phase one agreement. Um, But the phase one agreement uh, didn't cover the toughest issues, really. Uh, It didn't cover restrictions on manu or didn't cover agreements on manufacturing, for example, which is the thing I think uh, Trump really wanted out of it. So you have still the trade tensions. I mean, let's break it down. You've got that. Uh, You've got the military competition, which uh, centers on the South China Sea, East China Sea, and Taiwan potentially. In, In the background of all of that, you have the approaching presidential election. Now, I've been around long enough to have listened to the China debate in every presidential election. And in every presidential election, China is one of the bad boys. So we're about to experience a lot of rhetoric, perhaps not from the Democratic side. In fact, I don't anticipate it from the Democratic side, even though it has been often in the past on the Democratic side. But I have a sense it may not be this year because of these unique circumstances. But the uh, potential for a a breakthrough in China-U.S. relations is not great at the moment. It's probably an understatement. Add to that the fact that you know Washington's debated this for years, and the way I see the foreign policy elite in Washington, whatever that means, uh, to some it's the swamp, to others it's the elite, I guess. Uh, but really, uh, smart people, thinkers, people who work on foreign policy, both in the government and outside, that the mood on China has really soured in the last couple of years, a sense that. Um, we have tried all of the things that we can try to encourage a better relationship with China um, and, and nothing has quite worked. And so that that's left, I think, more people than in the past thinking of China as much less than a partner. When in fact, for years, the debate was, will China be an enemy, an adversary, a competitor, potentially a partner? Right now, I think the partner uh, vote is pretty small. Mm -hmm. What do I think? I think, I get to say what I think. (laughs) I I think we ought to be trying to figure out how to uh, get closer to competitor partner here. Because given the fact that these are the two most important, largest economies in the world, we're not just doing this for ourselves it's going to affect everyone in the world what happens in the China-U.S. relationship. So we actually are carrying a responsibility for a good part of the world when we deal with China. I think, um, you know, a trade war is a bad idea, even though I think Trump is correct to have spotted, um, you know, abuses in their trade program. That's fair enough. But to make it a, uh, a war is a bad thing. Uh, to have pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, gave up leverage that we would have had in Asia to deal with China on a more um, effective uh, foundation because uh, we, we would then have had with the uh, 11 other, I guess, total of 11 other countries uh, from Pacific to Asia, we would have had a, a foundation of accord on broad trade issues with which to face China, 
uh, versus the situation we have now where we're facing them bilaterally and the remaining members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership have coalesced and gone their own way in an agreement that leaves us out. So, you know, what what you've got to do then to get a better strategic relationship is get back into that kind of club where you're dealing with all of these people together we have the advantage of uh, traditional alliances like NATO, the European Union relationship, the former partners in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If we were all knitted up with them, then we would be able to represent those interests combined in our dealing with China rather than where we are now. So I don't want to leave the sense that this is all hopeless. This is all fixable, repairable. But it's hard work, and those things, I think, have to be done with no illusions, uh, because China is certainly not uh, certainly not going to be an easy counterpart for us to deal with. They are a rising power. They are looking to the future. They think their day has come, and yet they have their own internal problems. And we, I'll stop there, because that's the other side of this coin. They're not... Uh, they're having their own internal problems. Yeah. It really seems to me, and I don't know if I'm overstating this, but it it seems to me that they sense that this is an opportunity for them to garner some significant influence around the world, right? With us, with us focused internally and with their ability to uh, share medical supplies and medical personnel that they see this as a soft power opportunity. And I'm, I'm wondering how you think about that. It certainly is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to gain or to gain soft power, uh, or to you know present a different face that leaves that residue of soft power with other countries. I um, I'm skeptical that they can bring it off, in part because um, I don't uh, I I just don't have a sense that people identify with their everything from their human rights practices to their governmental structure they'd like to present what they what they are doing governmentally as an alternative model you know call it market leninism whatever you want to call it basically a fairly open economy and a and a very restricted tight political control regime i don't think anyone really wants that but i could be wrong i mean we may be at the one of those that's how i would bet i would bet that people will take their they will have a transactional relationship with China, be very happy about that. But the only reason they will they would lean toward China and uh, allow China to exploit this for soft power advantage and leadership advantage, the only reason in my judgment is because we are creating a vacuum. In other words, we are creating a void there that they can move into. We are part of the opportunity. And I think if we got back on the field, people would... It run to us. Everyone I talk to in Asia, and I'll bet you've had this experience too, they want us in the game in Asia. They don't want, they're in China's orbit economically, but they don't want to be in it politically. That's where I see it. Yeah. John, um, the other primary adversaries of the US, Russia, Iran, North Korea, one of the, one of the questions that I get, I'd love to pose it to you is, do you have any concerns about any of them trying to take advantage of the current situation? Yes. Yes. 
uh, Iran, I'm sure they all consider us not only distracted, but militarily less uh, adroit right now than we normally would be. And because of uh, um, the fact that our military has to be concerned about uh, this virus. So uh, we're seeing, I think in Iraq, there has been no let up in the attacks on uh, American interests and forces by Iraq's, Iran's, uh, Iran's proxies, the, the militia and so forth. Uh, the Russians have been uh, behaving mischievously with things like, um, you know, buzzing our uh, aircraft and and uh, ships, uh, vessels in both uh, the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Uh, the Chinese uh, have been very provocative recently in the South China Sea, and the North Koreans have been on a missile shooting spree. So. Add all of that up, I think you're definitely seeing a time when uh, these countries uh, see an opening to do things that we would normally combat instantly, both rhetorically, publicly, and perhaps militarily when we're off balance. We're not be, being able to do much of that. Yeah, the one the one I worry the most about, John, is is Iran, because they both need an external enemy and external focus to get their public's mind off of their public's dissatisfaction with them. And I, I think they sense that maybe this is an opportunity for us to say, to look at Iraq and say, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth fighting for. So I do really worry about Iran picking up the tempo even more in Iraq with the hope that we just say, you know, we're going to go home. It's not worth it. I think that's a valid fear. And uh, I mean, we haven't mentioned, uh, that's absolutely, I agree with you. Uh, we haven't mentioned Syria either, where uh, in this current circumstances, we were already at the point of saying it's not worth it to us, but we're now at the point of, uh, I think it's hard for me to imagine us remaining uh, very committed there in these circumstances. And, and also places like this, uh, it confronts, you know, it, it, it ripples into other things. For example, the, the, the great controversy now over the World Health Organization. You, know, you could do a whole podcast on that itself. But, um, you know, what they're facing reminds me of the kind of situations that you and I often dealt with in our former jobs, where you look at something and you realize the alternatives facing us, none of them are good. Which one is least bad? I think the World Health Organization is not without its faults and flaws. But when you look at a situation like Syria, for example, they're kind of stuck. Uh, if, if they don't intervene in parts of the world where we can't really be present, whether it's Syria or sub-Saharan Africa, uh, those countries are not going to get much help uh, as this virus takes hold. And yet they end up having to deal with uh, nasty characters, dictators, and open themselves up to criticism for doing that. So which do we want? Do, do we want them not to do that? Do we want them to do that? Those are, those are unpalatable alternatives. But um, this virus is confronting people with those kinds of choices. So another question I wanted to ask you is about uh, international terrorists. You know, we've 
we've we both know that Al Qaeda prior to nine eleven was was researching chemical and biological weapons, um, anthrax on the biological weapon side. We know that ISIS was interested in both chemical and biological weapons and actually used chemical weapons on the battlefield in Iraq and Syria, chemical weapons they had produced in university labs that where those universities were inside the caliphate. So I'm just wondering about how, if, if this might rekindle an interest of terrorists in biological weapons. What's your sense? You know, that's a really tough one, Michael. The surprising thing to me all along with terrorism is why we haven't seen them use biological weapons more than they have. Because we've known for years that they're not that hard to make, leave aside coronavirus. You know, it's been demonstrated that you can make pretty sophisticated chemical and biological tools with, you know, house household chemicals and fairly easily available strains, cultures. So I, I, I'm puzzled as to why they haven't done it before. I, I could see, I almost hate to say it because I don't, sometimes you think up an idea and you think it's so horrible, you don't want to suggest it. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I could see the extreme elements of that, of these organizations seeing merit in uh, infect, getting someone infected and, and circulating them in society somehow as a kind of uh, living uh, weapon that doesn't, uh, can't be detected very easily. On the other hand, it's also occurred to me, this is why this question is so hard. It's also occurred to me, if, if you're in ISIS right now, you're probably on the run, hiding out in remote mm. parts of Iraq and Syria you're probably getting this virus mm. uh, or you're susceptible to it. And it could just as easily uh, destroy their fighting population as it destroys everything else. And hard to believe that they have much in the way of medical equipment, testing, uh, medicines and so forth. So I, I think that's a really hard one. I can't really offer any great wisdom on that one. Let me just come into the last last question, John. Come back to this issue of China's pursuit of influence. One of the one of my concerns is the financial stability of emerging markets. They are heavily leveraged. Um, They have a lot of dollar denominated debt. They're not going to be, from a public health perspective, be able to deal with the outbreak, they're not going to have the fiscal and monetary policy tools to make a difference on the economic side. So I wouldn't be surprised if a number of them start lining up outside the IMF and the World Bank asking for help. And my fear is that there's going to be so many of them that they're not going to be able to get what they need from those institutions. And there's only one place in the world who has that kind of money. And so I'm concerned that China kind of swoops in to save the day here for many of these emerging markets and the potential impact of that on Chinese influence may be much, much more significant than, than it is on the public health side. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, when the, uh, the projections I've seen for emerging markets have their growth rates plummeting by 
at least 5% uh, over the next, uh, over this year, just this year. And Lord knows what happens after that. There, and we knew how difficult we knew how difficult it was, right, to deal with one country in financial crisis or two or three in financial crisis, let alone ten or fifteen. Right, and a number of these countries, yes. So yes, they're ripe for the picking, and China will show up, I'm sure. Again, the only way I think China begins to translate this into. Um, real influence is if they stop being so transactional in the way they provide assistance like this. Usually what they're doing is providing assistance with uh, all kinds of qualifiers, not moral and human rights qualifiers, but qualifiers that give them uh, territorial rights, commercial rights, and so forth. And so there's a kind of exploitative quality to their assistance. Um, That doesn't mean people wouldn't take it, but it, it does, again, in my mind, uh, limit how much love they buy for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe it's not so much about love, though, in the end. And, and then in the end, you've also got to look at uh, how uh, one thing we haven't talked about, and very quickly, I would just observe, the, the other part of the economy that's really in a tailspin as a result of this little tiny microscopic virus is the oil market. Right. Uh, because everyone's production is down, demand is down, uh, Russia and China had a brief uh, battle over uh, reducing oil uh, output. Uh, Russia won. And so uh, that is going to hit some of these emerging markets, uh, Nigeria, Angola. It's going to hit Russia itself. Right. And, uh, that's another almost incalculable uh, factor in all of this. But again, um, if China's recovering, they'll be one of the few people buying oil. And so that's another um, bit of leverage they have, perhaps. So I think the benefit with China is we keep our eye on it. Uh, you know, I've said where I stand, but I'm also quite prepared to say I could be wrong because we're going to see some discontinuity out of this that none of us are predicting. Right. John, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to be with us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you. That was John McLaughlin. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary, it is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.